0: Let's take our Bibles, please turn to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. And I, I come tonight with um, one of the main things I want to do is encourage you uh, from the Word of God tonight. Really want you to uh, walk away, be encouraged. And uh, Pastor mentioned Amanda. She is just two weeks away from having our first grandchild. And it is boy. And uh, his name will be Tony. And here's the well, before you say, oh, before you say, oh, Amanda told me specifically why he's being named Tony. And she said, Dad, I've always wanted to spank a Tony. (laughs) And so so she is uh, naming her son that for that reason, I guess. And uh, it'll be my privilege to spoil him and uh, make sure that I can give him back and she can do all whatever she needs to do with him. After that, Psalm 27 in our Bibles. It is amazing what God's doing in Papua New Guinea. I'll talk a little bit more about that. I do want to say this. Nothing in the video that you saw was scripted. What I mean by that is I didn't ask students to sit down and read their Bible after we handed it to them. That's just what they did with their Bible. They just sat down and began to read their Bible. Uh, We didn't ask students to give a particular testimony. We said, if you would like to uh, say thank you, you can line up here. And literally, school at schools, students would line up for over half an hour just to say thank you time and again on video. And and I, I would have to leave. I'd say, you know, we got to get to the next school. And students would still be waiting. Uh, the man that you saw seated in the video, uh, Pastor Tao, the man that was seated in front of the SUV, he's seated because uh, about a year ago he had a stroke. He is not able to stand by himself. He has no use of his right side of his body by, his, by himself, can't use his right arm. He speaks the way he does because of the stroke. He has to be aided by his men when he, when he walks, but he goes to the Bible distributions. and Just an amazing man, and it was my privilege to sit with him, talk with him, and, and uh, be able to call him my friend now. The last day I was in Papua New Guinea, we were speaking, we were just sitting together quietly. Uh, outside the church, and, and he leaned over with tears in his eyes and thought, and he said this to me, he said, thank you so much for coming to my country. And I thought, my privilege, my privilege to be here. And uh, just amazing what God is doing. Psalm 27 in our Bibles, Psalm 27, this I, I hope will make sense in your minds, and we'll tie in with what we're talking about in uh, Papua New Guinea, but also uh, just what God's doing around the world. And God is not done. God is not done working. Uh, There are people who think that God is done working. I've heard people say that God is done working, but God is not done. We just got back from uh, a lengthy time in... Prince Edward Island, New Brunswick, and had a good time in New Brunswick. And uh, the pastor kind of played a trick on me there Sunday morning. He said, hey, why don't you give your testimony? I thought, well, that'll be easy. And he said, by the way, why don't you do that in French? And I said, do you know how long it's been since I have stood in a pulpit and spoken French? He said, you'll do great. It'll be fine. And so I struggled my way through that and and, uh, got through it. And they seemed to understand. And so uh, that worked out well. But it has been probably about 15 years or so plus that I had to stand in a pocket and speak and have a conversation with Somebody. That's not. That's a. That's one thing. But to stand in the pulpit and to uh, speak was a completely different thing. And I hadn't done that for a long time. And then we just came back from. Uh, A great, great missions conference and a pastoral transition in Sherbrooke. Uh, Our dear friends, Chris and Christine Hilmer, BIMI missionaries. Chris lived in our home for language school uh, 20-something years ago, and uh, they uh, have recently resigned their position with BIMI, and he is now the assistant pastor at uh, and also teaching in the Christian school at Heritage Baptist Church in Barrie, Ontario. And a new BIMI missionary couple, Wes Burns and his family, Rebecca and their children, have taken over uh, as uh, the missionary pastor at Sherbrooke. So we're going through a pastoral transition. We had a uh, missions conference all at the same time. And God just really blessed that from beginning to end. The church never lost a single person during the transition. In fact, they grew during the transition. There was a young lady from Brazil who had been visiting uh, the church for a couple weeks. After the Sunday morning service, Paula got to sit with her and lead her to the Lord on Sunday morning. And the church, when we left, was poised to have their greatest faith promise offering in the history of that church. And so God is still doing great, great things. I, I only tell you that because it ties into what I want us to see and Psalm 27, that God is not done working here on planet Earth. And so Psalm 27 in our Bibles tonight... And uh, we're going to read the entire psalm. It's not very long, but we're going to read the entire psalm. I don't normally uh, read a whole passage. Usually I'll just preach from a, a single verse. But there's a number of things I want us to see from this. And we're going to go kind of quickly at the beginning. We're working our way toward the end of the psalm. And we're going to do that kind of quickly this evening. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my strength, uh, the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid. When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise up against me, in this will I be confident. One thing have I desired of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple." For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me upon a rock. And now shall mine head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When thou saidest, Seek my face, Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. Deliver me not over unto, all, unto the will of mine enemies, for false witnesses are risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord, our Father, we do ask that you'll bless our time in the Word this evening, and, and ask that you'll uh, encourage each Christian here this evening uh, by your Word and uh, through these uh, these verses that David has penned by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. Perhaps somebody here, though, is is not saved, and they'll even this night be saved. Trust Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, and we'll thank you for what you accomplish in Jesus' name, Amen. You know, all of us probably have a favorite place that we like to go to in the world. We probably, if I were to say to you, what's your favorite place to go? Uh, You would probably immediately have something that's at the top of your list. And if you were to say to me, what's your favorite place in the world? I would tell you right away that my favorite place in the world is Yosemite National Park. It's just a place that I love to go to and spend time in. And and my family and I have been able to vacation in Yosemite. Our oldest daughter, Amanda, was married in Yosemite. um, Not too long ago, a couple few years ago I guess now, we took a a men and boys camping trip to Yosemite National Park. It was late in the fall. It was right before the mountain passes were going to close for the season and it was cold and yet we we got into Yosemite Valley very early one morning and the sun was just as beautiful as you can imagine. It was a day very much like we had today here. Just a beautiful uh, fall day the air was crisp. The sky was clear. And we were heading from the valley floor up to one of the waterfalls that sits at about 5,000 feet up. And so when you sit in the Yosemite Valley, you look up at these massive cliffs 5,000 feet up and some higher. And we were heading up to one of the falls. And we could see the falls from the valley floor. And it was an amazing sight. The sun was glimmering through the water. And we were looking forward to getting to those falls and, and just looking forward to a great day and just being in Yosemite National Park. But, you know, a lot of those paths that you'll take and a lot of those trails that you'll take through places like Yosemite, and especially when you're heading to a waterfall, they'll just follow the natural flow of the river from the waterfall. And and so, as we started our hike and and we were in the valley and enjoying the sunshine, looking forward to getting 5,000 feet up, getting a little closer to the sun, and, and be up there at the waterfall, we began to follow the path of the river. As we did that, we had to go down into a ravine. And it wasn't long before we were in the shadows. It wasn't long before it was cold because it was a crisp autumn morning. And it was uh, when we woke up that morning, it was 11 below. And so we were starting to feel the cold again and we were in the darkness again. And, and really, it wasn't long before I was not enjoying the hike so much. Uh, you know, when we were in the valley, I was looking forward to getting, getting to the waterfall. But as we got down by the ravine and we got down where it was dark and it was cold, I thought, you know, I just I'm just not enjoying this. And I started to feel like I don't think that this is really what I want to do today. And as I think about that hike, I think that that hike is very representative of sometimes our Christian journey. Sometimes you and I can see the mountaintops Sometimes you and I feel like we can feel the warmth of the Father's love and it seems like everything is going perfect and we can see the waterfall and we're looking forward to being there and all of a sudden, we're in the shadows. And in Psalm 27, it seems to me that David is describing this kind of experience in his life where where David, uh, I I think in in the early verses of Psalm 27, David's not waiting to get to the waterfall. He's kind of already there. But while he's there, it seems like something comes in and it's maybe an overcast sky. I don't know exactly, but all of a sudden it seems very cold in the middle of Psalm 27. David goes through some worries and some troubles. And and I love Psalm 27. I love to look at the parts of Scripture where I see David as a man who I can sometimes identify with. You know, because when I look at David in the Valley of Elah, And I look at David when he's getting ready to go down and meet Goliath in the Valley of Elah. It's hard for me to identify with David at that point because I'm just going to be honest. I don't think I have the kind of faith that it would take to charge down into the Valley of Elah like David did. I hope that one day I might have that kind of faith. But I look at David and those kind of things I say, I can probably never be like David. But when I come to a place like Psalm 27, I look and I say, David was just a regular guy. And I don't know about you, but that encourages my faith. Because when I look at a man like David, who had this great faith to go down and meet Goliath in the Valley of Elah, I say, but he was also the guy who wrote Psalm 27. And while he maybe had these mountaintop experiences, he also had some cloudy days. And I want to look at some things from the text with you this evening, and we're going to really move quickly through the first part of the psalm. But I want you to notice with me, if you would, please, the very first thing I just want us to see is in verses 1 through 5, I want us to see a stunning proclamation, a stunning proclamation. And, and notice all that David speaks about in these first five verses of Psalm 27. Psalm 27. Uh, David really does seem like he's walking on the mountaintops with God at these, in these early verses. And notice in verse number one that David says this. He says in Psalm 27, in verse number one, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? You know, I know that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, and he is my Savior. But I'm glad that He's also my salvation. Think about that for just a moment with me tonight. You know, we live in a world that seems to be coming apart at the seams. We look at we look at the the political leaders in Washington D.C. and they're so wrapped up in themselves and they're fighting and everything else. It seems like. You know that they would rather tear our country apart to get their own way than to really do what they're supposed to do as elected leaders. And I'm glad tonight that the government isn't my salvation. I'm glad tonight that I don't have to look to a man to be my salvation. I'm glad to be reminded by David tonight, not only have you received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior on your way to heaven, but he is right now, present tense, my salvation. And that gives me a lot of hope in this world, because when I look around at this world, there's not does not seem to be a lot of hope to be had in this world, except for that when I remember Jesus is my salvation. And so David is on the mountaintop, and he speaks about the Lord being his salvation. In verse 2, he speaks about the strength that he has from the Lord. In verse 3, he speaks about the serenity that he has with the Lord, that, that peace that passes all understanding. In verse number 4, he speaks about a sustained or daily fellowship that he enjoys with the Lord. In verse, 20, uh, in verse number 5, he speaks about uh, the security that he has from Jesus Christ as his Savior. He speaks about strength stability in his life in verse number five and in verse six he says you know it makes me want to offer sacrifices to God because of his goodness you know that's a that's a normal response from a Christian who's experiencing the goodness of God that we would offer a sacrifice you say I thought that was done pastor told us this morning Jesus Christ was the one sacrifice I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice David said, you know, God's been so good to me, the least I can do is give myself back to him. In Verses one through five, verses one through six, David is at the waterfall. He's not waiting to get there. He's rejoicing in God's goodness. He's reminiscing about what's going on. But as we get to verse seven, we turn a corner. And it happens rather quickly It seems to happen without warning. It seems to happen without any reason. And it seems that David's faith is about to crumble. I don't know what happened in David's life between verse 6 and verse number 7. I think it's important that I don't know. I think it's helpful that I don't know. Because whatever caused the shadows to enter into David's life may not be the same things that caused me to feel like I'm in the valley. But I do know this, David goes from this great mountaintop experience in the early part of the verse to verse number seven, where he seems to think it's all about to fall apart. And we don't know exactly what has been going on. But somebody said this, and it's well said, I think, there are lights and shadows in the Christian life. And sometimes it seems that the shadows are cast at lightning speed. I wonder if you've ever kind of been there. I mean, you wake up in the morning, everything's great. You think, man, I'm going to the waterfall this afternoon. It's going to be a wonderful day. By the mid-afternoon, I'll be on the mountaintop. But something happens. And long before noontime, it's all shadows. If you remember anything tonight, I hope you'll remember this. There's not a shadow in this world that can exist without light. There's not a shadow that can exist Without light, And when the shadows start to form, when the sky becomes overcast, when we're down in that deep ravine, it's up to you and I to walk by faith saying, the Lord is still light. The Lord is still my light. The Lord is still my salvation. And it seems to me that this is the process that David goes through. And, and so I want to notice it with you as we go through. So I see, this, I see this stunning proclamation in verses 1 through 5. And it's all about the goodness of God and God's salvation. And God is my salvation. And God is my light. But when we get to verse 7, there's this sudden plea. A sudden plea. And, and it really introduces in this portion of Scripture a dose of Sadness. There seems to be anguish and questioning in David's heart. By the time we get to verse number nine, David is so overwhelmed with the shadows that he's wondering, he's concerned if the Lord will hide his face from him or even forsake him. Now, I know that you know tonight from a theological standpoint, David's theology is off. That from a theological standpoint, you and I know. God will never leave us nor forsake us. But is there a person in the room who's never wondered, I wonder where God is? So when David's theology is off here, I think he's really in that same mindset. I wonder where God might be in all of this. Perhaps David is like many who think, this is all too good to be true and are waiting for the bad news. Maybe David is reflecting on his past sins and thinking, perhaps God really is done with me. Will there be a time when when the Lord forgets me as my enemies encamp around me? Will he always be there? And I think many of us probably from one time or another will go through that kind of period in our lives, maybe more often for some than others but I think all of us probably from one time or another have that time in our life where everything seems to be going right. Maybe we get a dose of bad news. Maybe we get some bad news from the doctor or maybe a bad phone call or maybe the employer is is, is giving out pink slips, whatever the case might be, and all of a sudden it's shadowy and we think, I wonder where God is in all of this. But I think more often than not, even more often than in a personal way, especially the day and age in which you and I live, we think it in a corporate way. And what I mean by that is we look around us. We look at the world that is coming apart at the seams. We look at how anti-Christian, anti-God, anti-Bible the world has become how overtly sinful the world has become, how lackadaisical our churches have become and our Christians have become. And we begin to wonder and think, I wonder if God maybe isn't done working in the world. Oh, I know that the preachers are always talking about the the Great Awakening, but that was a couple hundred years ago, and it seems like since then it's been getting more and more shadows I wonder if we'll ever see revival in our lifetime, Brother Mike. I wonder if there'll ever be more missionaries being called. I wonder if, if the church will ever grow again. I personally, however you believe about this, is, is between you and the Lord, I personally do not believe in a thing called the Laodicean age. I personally don't believe that. I don't believe that there's an age in which God can't or won't work. But even if you did believe in the Laodicean age, let me say this, when you get to the church of Laodicea, God gives them a choice. God tells them, look, you don't have to be cold. You don't have to be uh, lukewarm. You can be hot. You can be on fire for God. And so I don't, I don't necessarily believe in a Laodicean age, but I do believe in a Laodicean attitude. And I believe that many churches will say that we live in a Laodicean age because they have a Laodicean attitude, and that makes them feel better about their attitude. And so I don't believe in a Laodicean age. If you do, that's fine. But even if you do believe in that, you still have a choice. You don't have to be cold. You don't have to be lukewarm. You can be on fire for God. And so as I look at the world, though, Even though I look at scripture and say, I think that when Jesus was writing, uh, uh, giving uh, John the letters to write to the seven churches, I just think those were just seven local churches that represented churches in that day. And you could find every one of those kind of churches in every age throughout the ages. As As I look at that, it's not hard for me, though, to look around and say, maybe we do live in a Laodicean age. I, I understand why people say it. I'm not criticizing tonight when people say, Well, it's just a Laodicean to see an age and aging. God is done. I can understand the mindset, but I don't have to buy into it. I wonder if we'll ever see more missionaries enlisting than resigning. Can we keep up with the attrition rate? It amazes me, Brother Mike, that I've had evangelists who want to come in and preach revival. Who will tell me we live in the laodicean age, so there's never going to be revival? You're in the wrong business, sir. You believe it. Why would why would I invite you to preach revival at a church that I pastor if you don't believe revival can come? Amen. But it's not hard for me to look around and say I understand why people believe that. It's not hard for me to look around and say I understand why people would think. Is it just going to keep on getting darker? You know, we just made the move from Arizona to Chattanooga. And you know what they call Chattanooga, right? You know what that section of the country we live in is, right? They call it the Bible Belt. First of all, let me say this. This country does not have a Bible Belt. We have a church belt. It exists where I live. There's a church on every corner. But there's not a lot of Bible so we, we don't have a Bible belt any longer. But everybody says I live in the Bible belt. And since we're gonna live in the Bible belt for the foreseeable future, Paul and I thought a couple months ago it would be good if we became Tennesseans. You're gonna live in Tennessee, might as well become a Tennessean. You say, well, how do you become a Tennessean? Well, you just say y'all a lot. But you got to do something more than that. You have to go to motor vehicle, get a Tennessee driver's license and a Tennessee driver's plate. So not too long ago, Paula and I are going to become Tennesseans. And we are in the Bible Belt. And we're sitting in a completely packed, filled room with other people living in the Bible. Bible Belt. By the way, if anybody but the government tried to do what they do at those motor vehicle departments, we would call it the Mafia. So we're sitting there with these people and I'm in the Bible Belt. And all the rest of these people are in the Bible Belt. And as we're sitting there waiting to get our license to become part of the Bible Belt, or so everybody tells me, Sitting directly across from us are two young women in their 20s. They've been recently divorced from their male husbands and are now going to be married one to the other and are dragging an adolescent girl into that mess. And I'm in the Bible Belt. Sitting behind me is a man Now, I know he's a man, but he's not convinced. He's got glitter all over his pretty nails. His hair is done, and he's talking like this. And I'm in the Bible Belt. The young women who are walking into the motor vehicle department to have their photos taken are dressed in the attire of a harlot. The language I hear around me is so filthy, so perverse, that I think it would have made men who I locked up in maximum security prisons blush, and most of it, by the way, was coming from women. And I'm in the Bible Belt. Can I say it this way? The motor vehicle department in Tennessee in the Bible Belt is a freak show. It, you, don't buy tickets to go to the circus. Just go to the motor vehicle department. Or Walmart. I, I, I spend my money other places because I treasure my sanity. What little I have left. Do you understand what I'm saying? Not hard to look around and say, well, we just live in a Laodicean age. This is just how it's going to be. People are just going to be this way. And it's, it's going to wax worse and worse, right? We know that. But let's not look at sinners acting like sinners and say, oh, that equates to the church being a Laodicean age. Let us you and I still be salt and light. But it's not hard to look at all that and say, you know, I wonder how long before God is finally angry enough to say I'm done. And so I don't know, probably from time to time, you and I will look around and we will we'll say, you know, seems like I was on the mountaintop this morning. Seems like right now I wonder where God is. But in a corporate way. It's not hard for me to wonder. We need 30 people just to fill churches who don't have pastors in Canada right now. And that's just in a small section of Canada. Is God done? Does he no longer care about those churches? Of course he does. I think that's where David's at when he comes to this sudden plea. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. Notice three things quickly about David's plea with me, if you would, first first of all, would you notice the passion of his plea? Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Now, again, from a theological standpoint, do I have to pray out loud for God to hear me? Of course I don't. God knows my heart, he knows my thoughts and intents of my heart, and he knows everything about me before I utter a single word, But when I get passionate about something, I start to open my mouth. And I look at where David is, and I simply say this, that David is in a place where he needs to see God work, and he starts to get passionate about it. And perhaps if you and I started to get passionate in our prayer life, instead of just kind of waking up in the morning and saying, I've got to check off my prayer time, because that's on my Christian to-do list, and so I can feel good about myself, but maybe if we got passionate about our prayers once again, and actually began to come to God, instead of saying, oh God, bless all the missionaries in the world. Why don't you just pray God bless all the food in the world as well? Bless every evangelist in the world. Why don't you just make all the corn in the world grow? Maybe if we got uh, passionate about what we were praying about, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll find myself when I'm praying and I'll start to really think about what's going on and I'll I'll, I'll begin to dwell and I'll have some quiet time with God. It's not long before I'm opening my mouth. It's not that God needs to hear me, but I'm getting passionate about what's going on. David cries with his voice. He doesn't have to vocalize his prayer, but he's passionate. It is still the the fervent prayer of a righteous man that availeth much. David knew, as a man of God, how to handle a weapon of war, and he knew that his most powerful spiritual weapon he possessed was his prayer time with God. So David, we can expect to be passionate in his prayer time. Perhaps you and I have convinced ourselves that we live in a Laodicean age because we lack passion in our prayer time. And we've just decided that it's all done and no need to be passionate about praying for revival because, after all, the evangelists that call me say we aren't going to have it anyways, Brother Mike. Pastors tell me we're not going to have it. I think in 2007 or so, our church took as a theme Psalm 85 and verse number one, revive us again. Wilt thou revive us again. We decided that we would begin to, on our midweek service, meet before the service for a time of prayer. Now we had a prayer time after the service as well, but the time before was specifically for revival. People came at the first and then they would say, how long are we gonna do this? And they'd stop coming. When I left in 2018, we were still praying for revival. How long are you going to do this? Till revival comes. Till we have revival. That's how long. So David's got this passionate plea to the Lord, but then notice what he pleads for Lord, have mercy on me. Hey, you know what our world needs? God's mercy. You know what the church needs? God's mercy. You know what I need in my Christian life? Mercy. We come to God with a whole list of do this, do that, I want, give me this, give me that. You know what I need? I need God to show me mercy. I, I don't deserve to come to God at all, but if he gives me mercy, he's given me more than I could ever deserve. And then the the third thing I want to see about David as he prays is that he has this pressing desire. This pressing desire. And he says to the Lord, answer me. Could it be that you and I have become so lax in our prayer and so convinced that really God is done with us? We live in a Laodicean age that we pray to be heard instead of being praying to be answered well, I've got to pray, so I will. And I hope God hears me. I don't know about you, but I want God to answer me. I need God to answer me. And I I don't know about you, but when I'm talking to somebody and it seems like maybe now this is not the this is not a perfect illustration because God is always paying attention. But parents, have you ever had a time when you're talking to your children and it seems like they're not paying any attention and you're waiting for them to answer and you say, hey, answer me. Now, I'm not going to go to God that way and I don't need to go to God that way, but I do need God to answer me and I need to pray more than just to be heard. I need God to answer me. I need God to answer the prayer to to bring in the funds to pay for Bibles that we've already purchased by faith to send into Papua New Guinea. I need God to answer the prayer for the, the, the laborers that we need across Canada, Greenland, and Alaska. I don't need just for him to hear me. He's already aware of the need, by the way. I need him to answer me. I I don't need him to just hear me say, God, in our churches, we need revival. We need Christians to get on fire. We need more missions giving. I need him to answer me. But if I come to him and say, hey, God, just, you know, I know we live in this see an age, and when you get to it, maybe bless. Why should he be in a hurry to answer me? We have this incredible invitation from God. Come boldly to the throne of grace. When when we were trying to decide and trying to figure out God's will and and discern God's will for whether we should move from Arizona to become and take this new ministry as Far North Director with Baptist International Missions, I, I talked to Dr. Dave Schneider and I said, hey, I've been praying. It seems more yes than no. I can't really get anything. He said, look it, I would just set a date. I would just tell God, hey, I need an answer by, and I would set a date. I thought, that seems like a good idea. There's a reason why he's the president and general director, and I'm not. I can come boldly. Let me ask you a question. Parent, mom, dad, if little Johnny comes to you or little Susie comes to you and says, hey, I, I need to use the car on Friday night, and by the way, I'd... Like an answer before Friday. That's not obnoxious. That's not audacious. That's not, that's not stepping out of line, is it? That's even hardly bold. God says you can come boldly. And God, I, I, I need you to answer me. Study the great soul winners of day gone by. Study the great revivals, and, and you'll find that they, they cried out like David. John Knox, the great missionary and preacher in, in Scotland, the great uh, orator in Scotland, said, give me Scotland or I die. I think he had a little passion. George Whitfield, give me souls or I die. John, praying Hyde, the missionary to India, had a pressing desire for his for answered prayer. And he said this. He said, God, give me souls first one a day, then two, then four, then five or I die. That's different from God bless all the missionaries in the world. These men prayed as if their very lives depended upon the answer. Are you so concerned for revival in, the, in Harvest Baptist Church that you pray for it as if the answer determines whether you live or die? We need laborers across the nation. We need laborers across the, great, uh, the far north. We need laborers around the world. Jesus, one prayer request, pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers. God, send forth laborers or I die. God when you get a chance send a missionary there perhaps if we prayed with the pressing desire to be answered instead of just to be heard we might see answered prayer I want to move forward because I'm really trying to get us to the end of the verse or the 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 passage and so there's a lot more I would want to say a lot here a lot more we could say here and a lot more time that we could spend but I want to move forward We could stop at verse 8 and we could see that David had a sincere posture so that when he was praying and God said, hey, look at Seek My Face, David said, I'll seek your face, Lord. A sincere posture. But in verse 9, there's a sinking fear. Hide not thy face far from me. In verse 10, he, he speaks about the severed relationships he's suffered. When my father and my mother forsake me, I can identify with that. I see a submissive spirit in verse 11, teach me thy way. I see that he was going to, there was slander to be endured. False witnesses are risen up against me. Listen, anytime you try to do something for God, there will be somebody who says, that's just a show. He's just trying to get people to pay attention to him. And anytime you decide to be on fire in the so-called Laodicean age, there's going to be somebody who will slander you. But for sake of time, let's get to verse number 13 because that's where I've been aiming. And I want to see not just a stunning proclamation and a sudden plea, but a a startling profession. A startling profession. Look at verse 13. I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Notice three things with me here. Number one, David was somebody who put doctrine into practice, who put doctrine into practice. Most of us have this idea that doctrine is this boring thing that, that, that people going into the ministry endure when they go to Bible college and they have to go to Bible doctrine class. First of all, I would tell you that Bible doctrine is exciting Second of all, I would tell you this, but Bible doctrine is simply Bible teaching, therefore, it must be exciting. But doctrine, we have kind of whittled away at doctrine and boiled it down to something that we debate and that we discuss. But David was somebody who practiced it. You know how I know that? Because he says this I had fainted unless I believed to see. That's doctrine in practice. That is 180 degrees different from the way most people who believe they live in a Laodicean age are living out their lives. Here's what they'll say. I'll believe it when I see it. I'll believe it when I see it. David says, I don't see it, but I believe it. Completely opposite of the way we operate. Can I remind us, church, tonight that it is still impossible to please God without faith? And they that come to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. It is our job still to walk by faith and not by sight, and the just still live by faith. And it is still true that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. And God says, listen, uh, I need you to operate by faith. And David says, I'm going to put Bible doctrine into practice, and I don't see it yet, but I believe it. I was amazed, I was truly amazed and, and somewhat discouraged from time to time as we were calling candidates to take my place at Mountainside Baptist Church in Surprise, Arizona. Went through a number of candidates and I had one simple rule. I had a number of rules, honestly, but one principle rule, that, that if, you couldn't, if you couldn't do this one thing, There was no way you would ever be brought before the church as a candidate. And what I said to every candidate that we interviewed was simply this. Before we will bring you before the church as a candidate, we need you to tell us. I need you to tell me as the pastor. I need you to be able to speak to my deacons. And I need you to be able to say, God is leading me in that direction. Not that God has called me, but God is leading me. By the way, how can I know if God is leading you if you don't know that God is leading you? But we went through candidate after candidate after candidate who said, I can't do that. I've got to see the church. I've got to see the people. I've got to see the building. And I would tell the candidates, these people don't need you to interview them. They need somebody who's going to walk by faith. Even my deacons got with me and they said, Pastor, you're being too hard on these guys. You're going to have to give up on that one rule. And I said, I will never give up on that rule. If he can't tell us that God is leading him, how will you ever know that you can follow him? We went through so many candidates. It took us how many months? Six, seven months at least Finally, the last candidate I spoke to usually works out that the last candidate you speak to is the candidate that works out, just usually works that way. Last candidate I spoke to, had been a missionary for seven years in, in Argentina. Is that right? They, while they were in Argentina, their daughter died on the field came back to the United States, buried her, and went back to Argentina. While they were in Argentina for that second time around, their son developed a brain tumor and had the whole front left lobe of his brain removed. Now, he's he's a walking, talking miracle today. Other than his scar, you probably wouldn't know that that happened to him. But because of that, they decided, because of the medical needs he had, that it would be best to stay in the United States. For the last nine years, he had been an assistant pastor in in Dallas, Texas. And I said to him, I said, brother, we just need to know that you know that God is leading you here. And I, I explained to him why. By the way, Abraham went out not knowing whether he went. And I said, does that make sense to you? And he said, preacher, that makes perfect sense. You want to know why it made perfect sense to him? Because he had been a missionary. Now, I'm not building missionaries up to be something other than just regular people who walk by faith, but that is what missionaries do. They go sight unseen. We don't go on survey trips to see if we're called or if we're supposed to go. We just go on survey trips to survey the land and see what needs to be done. We believe to see. And I'm telling you tonight that until the church gets back to a place where it believes to see and walks by faith, it's going to be impossible to please God, and therefore it's going to be impossible to have revival. It's going to be impossible for missionaries to be called out in masses like we need, and, 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 and we're not going to see what God do what we want Him to do. We're going to have to get back to the place where we practice doctrine instead of just discuss it and debate it. David said, "Look it. I'm going to put my doctrine into practice. I believe to see. Number two, I want you to notice how this I want you to notice the declaration and, and notice how profound it is. The declaration is profound. If you would look at verse thirteen, notice with me if you would, please. David says, "I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living." Our Bible needs zero correcting. It's absolutely accurate as it stands. God has preserved his word. He has preserved it in the King James language, in, the English, in, in our English language. There's no doubt about that. But our King James translators were so concerned with accuracy and transparency that anytime they added words that were not in the original text, They're there for our understanding and they help us to understand the text. They're not there by mistake. It's not that they shouldn't be there. But anytime they put those words there, they italicize them to help us. And I think it's a help to see that David didn't say, I had fainted. So not to correct the Bible, but simply to see how profound David's statement is, let me read that without those three words. Unless I had believed to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. It's this open ended statement that says, unless I believe that, what? What's the alternative? I live in a Laodicean age and God is done. There'll never be revival, there'll be no more missionaries going to the field. Unless I believe to see the goodness of God in the land of the living, God's done. Do you see how profound the statement is? Now, it is true that David is saying, I would faint. It would cause me to to kind of fall out. But the truth is, the reason many of us fall out and don't do much for God and aren't on fire for God is because we don't believe God's going to do anything anymore. David says, hey, unless I believe that, The only alternative is I'm on the losing side. Last time I checked, I'm on the winning side. And I just, I'm going to believe to see. Notice a third thing. Move quickly. Notice a delightful persuasion. David's hope wasn't that eventually one day when he got to heaven, it would be okay. Okay. Now, I know ultimately the most livingless place, if that can be said that way, in the universe is heaven. Everybody's alive in heaven. By the way, everybody believes to see the goodness of the Lord in heaven. But if you study this out, David's reference, when he says, I believe to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, is not looking forward to heaven. He's he's looking forward to God working on planet Earth, in his day, in his life. And his, his reference is clearly to his time on planet Earth. I believe in my lifetime, David said. I believe in my lifetime. It may be cloudy right now. I may be down where it's dark, and it may be cold right now, but I believe that sooner or later in my lifetime, I'm gonna see God work again. In my lifetime, I'm gonna see the goodness of God. And, and if you study this passage, I would have you to key in on that word living. It comes from a Hebrew word, root word that is associated very often in our Old Testament with being revived of a revival spirit. Here's how we read it in Genesis 45 and verse 27 when D- Jacob heard that Joseph was still alive. Jacob's spirit revived same word, revived, land of the living. In, in Judges fifteen nine, the Bible says that Samson's spirit came again and he revived. Same word. In, in 1 Kings 17 and verse 22, when Elijah prayed over the widow woman's dead son, the scriptures say this, the soul of the child came into him and again and he was revived. In 2 Kings 1 and verse 12, the Bible is used of recovering from a disease. We have a disease in our churches. It's called a Laodicean attitude that needs revival. In 2 Kings 13 and verse number 21, when they dropped that dead man down into Elisha's grave, the Bible says this, they let him down and he touched the bones of Elisha and he revived and he stood up on his feet I think from that day forward, that guy was convinced God could do a few things. There's so many passages where this word living is translated as revived or has ties to revival spirit. And and I hope that you can see what David is saying is he has this this delightful persuasion. And it is simply this in my lifetime, God's going to do something great. Yeah, it may seem like we're falling apart at the seams. And even in the Bible Belt, where there's not so much Bible, it may seem like God's probably done. But if I believe that, I might as well quit what I'm doing. In fact, I might as well not even bother showing up for church. And I might as well just live my life as I eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Or I could just practice doctrine. I'm not asking you to do something supernatural tonight. I'm simply asking you to do what you you did when you got saved. I believe if I call upon the name of the Lord, I shall be saved. If you're saved, raise your hand. You believed to see before you ever saw it. And you're still believing to see. Why can you believe to see heaven, but you can't believe to see that God might bring revival tomorrow? Because Satan is more subtle than any, and he'd love for us to believe we live in a Laodicean age where God is done so that we call it quits. One last thing, I'm done. David moves from that, that, that profession And the last thing he says is this, be steadfast. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thy heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why? How come I know that? It doesn't seem like I'm seeing great things happening. I have 30 churches in the central of Canada that still need churches, uh, 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 pastors right now. I go to the motor vehicle department in the Bible Belt, and it seems like I'm in, in Babylon, for heaven's sake. And, and it seems like our churches are falling apart. Why can I be steadfast? Because I believe In my lifetime, God's going to still do great things. Now, your choice tonight is one of two things. You can either believe that or you can believe you're on the losing side. I choose to practice doctrine and believe the word. Our Father, we thank you. and Thank you for your goodness and your love. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Harvest Baptist Church that through the years has just stayed the course. Pray that as pastor comes now and closes this service as he sees fit, that you would work in lives, have your will and way. In Jesus' name.